0: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to episode 252 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we are in South London as we hear a story on a familiar theme. An eruption of violence waiting to happen. People knew it would happen, but nothing was done to stop it. But before we get to the story, a huge thank you to all my supporters on Patreon, especially those new members of this exclusive club. That is Andrew Ogden, Adil, Natalie Maxwell and Linda Feetum. Thank you all so much for your support, which is much appreciated. No adverts today? I'm sorry, I know how you look forward to them every week, so let's go straight to our guest of the month and year game to set the context for today's story. Number one in the UK was All Saints with Never Ever. In the US it was Savage Garden with Truly Madly Deeply. And in Australia, what a year for music it was. The second top selling album this year was Aquarium from Aqua. No, it really was. I would say that if you're too young to remember it the first time, go and check it out on YouTube. But I think this time I strongly suggest you don't. In the news this month, it was exciting times as Spice Girl Victoria Beckham got engaged to David Beckham. Those adverts for his whisky make me laugh every time, don't they, you? Is there anything he won't advertise for the right price? And talking of great romances, President Bill Clinton this month said, I want to say one thing to the American people. I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. This month saw the tragic suicide of former Yorkshire and England wicket-keeping great David Bairstow. He was just 46. And in UK True Crime News, this month saw the birth of Tia Rigg. At just 12 in Manchester, she was raped and murdered by her maternal uncle, John Madden, who was sent to prison for life. Did you get the month and year? It was January 1998. Tulse Hill is a district in the London borough of Lambeth in South London. The name of the area originates from the Tulls family name, who came into ownership of farmland in the area during the Commonwealth period in the middle 1600s. More recently, the area was thrust into the headlines when following the London bombings of July 2005, a police surveillance operation was conducted on a block of flats in Scotia Road, a recently developed area of Tulse Hill. Terrorist Osman Hussain was linked to a flat in the housing block. The Brazilian man, John charles de Menzies, was also a resident in the same block and was of course fatally and wrongly shot at Stockwell tube station by the police who had been tracking Hussein. Tulse Hill and its surrounding areas are also locations in novelist Mark Billingham's crime book In the Dark but that was of course fictitious and today's case is tragically a very real one. Daniel Joseph was 18 years old when we joined the story and he suffered with severe learning difficulties. He was both deaf and mute, having as a baby developed an ear infection which became progressively worse to the point where he became completely deaf. His family was a large one with nine brothers and sisters who were all able to study and prosper, while Daniel drifted off course and he struggled academically. He was unable to speak and he struggled to learn to the extent that he never managed to read or write properly. He did manage to learn sign language, but was constantly met with obstacles related to his hearing impairments. It affected him socially too. These were very different times. And for example, he wanted like the rest of the children to play football, but the other players could not cope with his deafness, so he didn't play football with them. At 14, he became the focus of both the educational and health services, when his teachers began to complain of Daniel's disruptive behaviour, whilst doctors claimed that he was a hyperactive child. You know how it is, parents often know their children best, and his mum Claudette took a different outlook, believing that her son was simply bursting with frustration. Yet as people discussed how to label his behaviour, Daniel retreated into his own private world. He became utterly captivated by American wrestling and the WWF, watching endlessly on TV. By the time he was 15, the majority of his time was devoted to Sid Psycho and Randy Savager et al. A world in which strength was the barometer for success, it seemed to chime with Daniel and he became convinced if he could somehow make contact with his favourite fighter Shawn Michaels, then he may be able to join his wrestling team, and then his life would change for the better. But rather than act as a force for good, it would be this adoration of the wrestling fraternity, which created Daniel's first major life crisis, and revealed the intense anger that boiled beneath the surface. It was the December of 1996, and Daniel was now aged seventeen. He had followed his hero's movements constantly, so when he heard that Shawn Michaels was to make an appearance at the London Arena for a belt, Christmas really had come early for him. He said, "This show is about cliches." Daniel packed a suitcase along with an expired passport and made his way to the arena. But at these shows, the stars are closely protected and Daniel wasn't able to make contact with Shawn Michaels. Distraught, he was found wandering outside the arena by a security man, who packed a dejected Daniel off home in a taxi. This created a huge frustration and anger within. He hadn't seen Shawn Michaels, and had not been able to achieve anything that evening, which he'd set out to do, and then finally, he was dismissed from the arena. When he reached home, He was now in a bitter state of anger. He became agitated, pushing one of his brothers and he even began to threaten his own mum. Claudette was alarmed and she called the police before they in turn called the doctor. The doctor witnessed his explosive and seething anger and advised that he be immediately admitted to hospital. This hospital would become Daniel's home for the following 18 months where he resided in a specialist unit for the deaf and mentally ill in Tooting, South London, run by the Pathfinder National Death Service. He was eventually released in August 1997. Daniel left the hospital, having been diagnosed as psychotic, the doctors claiming him to be, I quote, thought disordered and expressing paranoid delusions. He was described a drug called Risperidone, apparently recommended for acute and chronic psychosis. In tandem with this, he was provided excellent community care and given a place in the Ian Colley Hostel for the death in Wandsworth with follow-up appointments in Tooting. A community nurse and a social worker were assigned to keep an eye on him and help him with any needs he might have. However, two fundamental problems did surface. Firstly, the mental illness which he'd been diagnosed with was the type that paradoxically caused him to actually reject the support he was receiving. And after less than a month, he walked out of the hostel and went to live back with his mum and started to miss his appointments. The second major problem was, and it may be a familiar one to some of you listening, that nobody could make a decision regarding who was actually responsible for Daniel. Some believed he belonged to Lambeth Healthcare, whose patch he was in whilst living with his mum. Lambeth Healthcare, however, claimed that he belonged to Pathfinder due to his deafness and because the Ian Colley Hostel was in their area. Shrouded behind all of this, though, were Lambeth Social Services, who were also responsible for Daniel, but they believed that the primary responsibility lay at the door of either Pathfinder or Lambeth Healthcare. How often have we heard of similar such malfunctioning like this? A complete blurring of the lines and accountability. There was more confusion added to the mix when in November 1997, Daniel moved once again, meaning that he was now technically on the patch of a fourth authority, Bethlehem and Maudsley. This move from his mum's address saw him make on the face of it a most unlikely alliance with a fifty seven year old single woman named Carla Thompson. But Carla, like Daniel, understood how it felt to be marginalized in society. Perhaps this was why she felt inclined to help others who found themselves in similar positions. What cannot be in question was her kind heartedness and her willingness to step in and offer help and support to those who needed it, when it would be far easier to follow much of society and turn a blind eye to those embroiled in difficult situations in their everyday lives. Her genuine helpful nature had perhaps in part been forged from her own traumas and difficulties throughout her own life. She'd worked as a copywriter until the mid-1980s, until she suffered a serious breakdown. She spent time after that in the care of a London hospital, and eventually emerged from here with a profound but rather eccentric faith in God. She was left to fend for herself, another example of someone who'd passed through the system, only to be abandoned once they'd emerged from it, regardless of whether or not she actually needed additional support. Carla transformed her ground-floor council flat into a type of improvised church, it was here that she read the scriptures, drank heavily and played the guitar. A quite unique and eclectic mix that offered her own inimitable form of kindness and shelter to a range of stray people that she had a tendency to befriend. If I see you at CrimeCon, do please ask me about my experience of being befriended by a cult in Amsterdam in the Red Light District. It's the story. It was thought that Carla had even baptised several of these people in her bathroom, emphasising her staunch beliefs and dedication to her faith. Her flat had become known locally as a refuge for the destitute. But in many respects, Carla's unwavering belief in God exposed Daniel to a cruel irony. Carla was utterly convinced that God could resolve any earthly problem, whether it be food, water or clothes. God would always step in and provide. As an example, when one of her dogs was seriously ill and dying, she hid him in a cupboard to prevent the RSPCA finding him because it was to Carla's mind God's decision whether or not the animal should live or die. In a similar vein, she started to drip feed Daniel with the same mantra that it was not for doctors to cure him and that it was pointless relying on tablets and prescribed drugs to help him. Daniel's life had certainly not experienced any upturn in fortune since he began begun his medication and so possibly he thought that Carla may have been right. In any eventuality, he heeded her words and sometime in the November 1997 he did summon the assistance of the Lord and ceased to take his Risperidone. This meant that the drug-induced plug which had helped his body resist his illness began to erode and the psychosis, little by little, began leaking back into his system. He began to display his violent tendencies once more, and physically he began to change too. He stood an imposing six foot seven tall, but was beginning to look thin and withdrawn. One episode in Carla's flat demonstrated how his anger appeared to be engulfing him once more. Daniel's stepdad was visiting him, and Daniel lost his temper with him. Suddenly Daniel leapt up and locked his arms around his stepdad's neck, much like how Shawn Michaels would do in the wrestling ring, and began to punch him. In an effort to stop the attack, Carla burst into prayer, which bizarrely seemed to hypnotically make Daniel fall to his knees and stop the assault. It would have been amusing if it wasn't quite so serious. Daniel had also started a relationship with a girl named Kirsty another of those rescued by Carla and living in the flat. Kirsty and Carla were soon instrumental in helping Daniel to escape to another flat, this time in Streatham, in response to Daniel's mum trying to have him sent back to hospital after she realised that he was spiralling out of control. He and Kirsty set up home here, but soon his behaviour became too irrational and bizarre for even his girlfriend, and she quickly fled the flat moving again, back to Carla's place in Tulls Hill. Daniel had frightened Kirsty because he'd become obsessive over assembling hordes of weaponry, which included hammers and knives, and he would leap around the rooms without warning, aiming kung fu kicks at the walls. When Daniel realised that Kirsty had fled the Streatham flat, his anger rose to the surface once more. Armed with a hammer, he followed her to Carla's well aware that that flat would be the only place she would have escaped to. His intention was apparently an amicable one, intending only to retrieve his TV set. But the fact he had armed himself to do this was a huge cause for concern and revealed much about his current state of mind. Daniel's mum, Claudette, was frantically worried she could hear the alarm bells ringing loudly and clearly. She was become distraught that nobody seemed to be happy to take responsibility for her son's welfare. Finally, though, a nurse from Lambeth Healthcare agreed to visit Daniel at Carla's address, despite this not technically being in her domain. The nurse noticed that Daniel had stopped taking his medication and that worryingly others in the flat were drinking and using drugs on a regular basis. The nurse arranged for a specialist registrar, Simon Edgar, to visit Daniel and in December, Edgar sat in Carla's front room with an audience of six others and two dogs and tried to assess him. He noted that Daniel was still maintaining ideas of a grandiose nature and that his sign language was conducted in a very fast and erratic manner. Edgar concluded that Daniel was displaying signs once more of a psychotic nature and that he was gradually falling into a state of relapse. Carla, however, on behalf of her erratic and vulnerable lodger, told Edgar that he was actually doing well and she was ultimately able to convince the doctor that Daniel should remain living with her, if only to concrete some form of stability into his otherwise chaotic lifestyle. Edgar advised Daniel that he must keep an upcoming appointment with a specialist clinic that had been made for him, but Daniel failed to do this. And so we ticked into 1998, a new year that did not herald the start of bright new beginnings for Daniel, however. His mum had made some form of breakthrough when she was able to persuade his care workers to hold a case conference, but on the 8th of January, it was decided he should be taken into the Morsley Hospital. By 19th of January, though, this still had not happened. And there he was, still residing at Carla's, but growing increasingly unstable. At this time, the Lambeth healthcare nurse who had seen Daniel previously wrote to the Morsley service and warned them starkly that Daniel's mental state and general behaviour was deteriorating fast and only urgent intervention could help. But this tragically never came. Only three days later, on Thursday the 22nd of January, at just before 8am in the morning, Daniel began to kick in the door to Carla's flat. He strode into her bedroom where Carla was still sleeping. He grabbed her by the hair and dragged her to the floor before unleashing a tornado of unadulterated violence. He set about his victim with his fists and feet. You recall that he was six foot seven and clearly Carla stood little chance of any type of escape. Perhaps mercifully, Carla soon lost consciousness and at this point, Daniel began hurling her around the flat, smashing up tables and chairs, only pausing intermittently to beat her further. He lit a piece of paper and attempted to set fire to Carla's hair, but this failed. This angered him further and induced him to commit a truly horrendous act. He fetched a tow rope and tied it around Carla's neck. He then towed her naked body outside to the car park. By now emergency calls had been made to the police as neighbours had heard the commotion in the flat. Daniel had left Carla in the car park and broken down the door of a second flat, that of Carla's neighbour and friend, 53-year-old Agnes Erum. He battered her senseless before carrying her out into the car park where Carla still lay. He then tied her by the neck to Carla while stamping on and kicking them both as they lay helpless on the ground. When the police arrived at the ghastly scene, it took them 20 minutes to arrest Daniel as he attacked them with the length of the drainpipe. While the police awaited backup, Daniel climbed onto a car roof and began jumping up and down on it whilst he beat his chest and grunted loudly. He was finally detained through the use of CS spray and the police wrestling him into a van before depositing him at Brixton Police Station. Deep into the night, though, he was still a seething pit of anger and violence. Leaping around his cell, he aimed kicks at the door and grunted and screamed profusely. Over the course of the weekend, his violence had still not lapsed and it would take 27 police officers in three vans to escort him to Broadmoor. He was strapped to a stretcher and heavily sedated. Yet even so, he still managed to bend his handcuffs out of shape. Meanwhile, back in South London, the two victims of his violence were both suffering horribly. Agnes, who was so randomly pulled into the chaos, had suffered a heart attack on the ground where she had been discarded. She was forced to spend a week in intensive care and survived, but had broken bones in her face, serving as a painful reminder of this shocking incident. Carla, sadly, was less fortunate. The woman who had taken Daniel in and done so much to try to help him had suffered over 50 injuries in the appalling attack and died in hospital the following day. Broadmoor Hospital was forced to hold a magistrate's hearing within its walls for the first time in its history. Their patient was deemed simply too violent to risk taking to a magistrate's court elsewhere. When you consider some of the violent offenders that Broadmoor has dealt with down the years, this really does emphasise just how dangerous Daniel Joseph was considered. The case moved to trial, and in July 1998, Joseph pleaded guilty to the manslaughter of Carla Thompson at the Old Bailey. Now, as a 19-year-old, he was sent to Broadmoor Hospital indefinitely. Whilst the court proceedings were relatively straightforward, the aftermath of the killing of Carla and how it could have been avoided revealed many of the usual dismal failings from several different authorities. The Lambeth, Southwark, and Lewisham Health Authority announced that an independent inquiry would be carried out to be chaired by a QC. A spokesman for the Health Secretary perhaps offered an early insight into what the report would uncover when he stated that the policy of community care had failed too many patients who had been given too little support. The case resonated strongly within the sphere of mental health provisions. Marjorie Wallace, who was the chief exec of the mental health charity SANE, was scathing in her comments as to how Daniel Joseph and his condition had just been allowed to fester and worsen to such deplorable levels, she said. This is the most shocking case to date of preventable death. Not only does it show the absurdity of a system that cannot keep track of one patient, but also the huge waste of money and resources with what appears to be a predictable and tragic outcome. One good professional relationship was all that he needed. She laid out the fundamental issues which had created this recipe for disaster in allowing Joseph to live with Carla and go without his treatment, particularly when considering that his mum was calling for him to be readmitted to hospital. In September 2000, the report of the independent inquiry team was published. It revealed that the lack of a coordinated aftercare plan and poor communication between three health authorities and the Pathfinder Psychiatric Service of Deaf People had contributed to the murder of Carla Thompson. It stated that the levels of aggression he had demonstrated could not have been predicted, but it added that his obsession with WWF wrestling was well known and this could well have been relevant in the horrifying way in which he killed Carla. The complications regarding Daniel's various addresses were also considered and highlighted the deficiencies with these, saying, As messages about Daniel's circumstances were relayed from one team to another, details of the appraised risk became somewhat diluted and unclear, and hence it became difficult to give this particular intervention the priority. It was judged to have by those who knew Daniel. At a press conference, the chief exec of Merton, Sutton and Wandsworth Health Authority and representative of all the agents involved accepted their joint responsibility for what had happened. She said steps have now been taken to ensure that a tragedy like this never happens again. She explained some of the changes which had been made in light of what had happened. Tellingly, the borough of Lambeth, for example, was now served by only one specialist mental health trust instead of three, which it hoped would improve communication between the different agencies. It was also concluded that specialist services for deaf people did not have the priority they deserved on the NHS executive agenda. Daniel Joseph's mum, Claudette, revealed that her son was very, very sorry for what had happened, and perhaps this understanding of remorse with some kind of step in the right direction. We can only hope also that the many recommendations which the inquiry suggested for improving the services for mentally ill deaf people do indeed help to prevent these terrible, essentially avoidable deaths from occurring in the future. So what do you make of what we've heard today? I appreciate that looking after people in the community is challenging in so many different ways. And I don't like to go into the details on the reports after another needless death. But there is no getting away from the fact that the violence we heard about today was totally avoidable. And what about Daniel in the 20 or so years since these events took place? I don't know what's happened to him, but I wonder what sort of a life he's been able to lead, and whether he's still inside an institution or back in the community. I think we also have great sympathy for his mum and wider family who have also suffered so much. But of course our real sympathies have to lie with the two victims of the violence here. That's Agnes and Carla, the two neighbours. Both must have been utterly terrified during the sustained assault. And Carla, who we concentrated on much more during this podcast today, whether or not you agree with her methods and her form of religion, she was a kind soul He just wanted to help people and do the right thing. It's just so tragic that she died at the hands of Daniel, someone that she'd only ever tried to help. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this podcast today. To discuss this story or any other aspect of UK true crime, please head to the Facebook group where you can find over 70,000 of us and have a jolly old time. And to support this show and catch all the bonus episodes, just head to patreon.com slash crime, or for as little as a second-hand face mask a month. And please don't forget to get your copy of The New Millennium Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Christopher Halliwell, which is the first book published by my book publishing company I set up with Kat earlier this year, Crime Publishing Network. So you can get it at Amazon or direct at crimepublishingnetwork.com. So that is all for me for this week. I'm off into the garden in my fake leopard skin thong to enjoy the last of the summer. So on that marginally erotic bombshell, until we speak again next week, please do take it easy despite all the others. And most of all, please stay classy. Cheerio for now.